Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. It is great to see all of you here this morning. I want to extend a warm welcome to our guests this morning. My name is Pastor Jeff one of the two teaching pastors here at Crosswalk, and it is truly my privilege to be presenting the Easter message this morning. Easter changes everything. This is the culmination of a series that we've been doing over the past seven weeks. Uh, Ultimate fighter. Jesus has been our ultimate fighter throughout the season of Lent and continues today to be our ultimate fighter, obviously. And today, we are going to talk about the ultimate victory that that he won for us. Let's uh, take a moment now and grab our Bibles. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, great. You can open it up to Luke chapter 24. If you happen to have a Bible app on your phone, feel free to take that out. Take out your phone anyway if, you, if you'd like. We'd love to have you check in on Facebook and let, them know that, let your friends know that you're here at Crosswalk listening to an Easter message and celebrating Easter with us. Luke 24, and we're going to begin at verse 1. I'm going to I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm just going to read it directly from the Bible. It won't be up on the screen, so I want you to just sit back, relax, and listen. I'm going to read the whole section first, and then it's broken down for us in the crosswalk notes, beginning at verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Sometimes when I read the Easter text, I get a childhood memory. How many of you can remember planning ahead or, or, or just coming home on a, on a Sunday night because you were excited to watch the old, old Judy Garland version of The Wizard of Oz. Anybody here with me on that? Like, I planned this out every year. Oh, there it comes, because it only came once a year. And so I made sure that I was there to watch it over and over again, It encouraged me to read L. Frank Baum's books about the Wizard of Oz. But there's a particular scene in there that I'm reminded of at Easter time. Maybe you remember this scene where Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the the Lion and the Tin Man and little Toto 
are all ushered into the throne room of the great and powerful Oz. Do you remember that scene? And then all of a sudden, they, they just know they're finally going to be able to meet this very powerful being who seems to be the king, the, the emperor of this land of Oz. And maybe he can do something to, to solve their problem. And he, he appears. There he is, just so powerful. But then all of a sudden, do you recall what happens next? Toto gets away. And where does Toto go? To the curtain. And when Toto pulls the curtain back, there's this old frail guy standing behind the curtain pulling all these levers and pushing all these buttons. And do you remember what he says? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) You see, it's interesting, and the reason this all reminds me of Easter is that in the case of the Wizard of Oz, behind the curtain of, of something that appeared, of someone that appeared to be very great and very powerful was a mere man. Weak, frail, old. Not really able to help Dorothy and her companions solve their problems at all. But Easter? Easter is the exact opposite, isn't it? You see... At Easter, we see the curtain pulled back too. And the person that just a few days ago looked like a mere man, a mere human, very frail, very human, the one who had bled, who had been tortured and mocked, who had been put down firmly and solidly, who had been nailed to a cross and died, Now the curtain is pulled back and we see that he is not only a man, he is a man, true man, but we see that he is also God risen from the grave. The exact opposite story of the Wizard of Oz. And that's what we hear in Luke chapter 24. We we hear the story of the curtain being pulled back. And it's a curtain that gets pulled back somewhat gradually as the disciples and the apostles begin to see what's going on. And then only gradually, only slowly, do they wrap their hands around, their arms around what's actually happened here. So I want to break this down for you today because actually the message of Easter is not pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's Pay the most attention to this man behind the curtain. Pay full attention to this man behind the curtain because you're going to find out that he is far more than just a man. So Luke 24, verses 1 to 3, if you have your crosswalk notes in front of you or your Bible, maybe your phone app, let's take a look at that and see what it says. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. I'm going to stop there. Because already we see something important that we need to bring out. Do you see that no one saw this coming? No one. Not not even the women disciples who had followed Jesus and had supported his ministry for years, they didn't see it coming. Jesus had predicted this, as we'll develop in a moment, but 
on their way out to the tomb, do you see what they're carrying? They're carrying spices. And what that means is they're thinking, they're planning that they're going to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And in fact, that's very likely the reason why they have headed out there very early in the morning because Jesus was crucified and died on a Friday. Saturday was a Sabbath day, so nothing could be done about his burial. So almost assuredly, the women were thinking to themselves, we, we cannot leave Jesus' body to rot one more day in a hot, close tomb. Let's get out there. Let's take the spices. Let's prepare him properly for burial. What's in their minds? He's died. He's dead. He's gone. It goes on in verse two and it says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. In another gospel, we learn that this has been a little topic of discussion amongst the women as they've headed out to the tomb as the sun was rising. How are we gonna get that huge, heavy stone to, to roll away from the tomb? I don't know if we can pull this off. Even though there are several of us, that stone is heavy and bulky. And so they've debated about it, but once they get to the place where Jesus had been put, they see that the stone has rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. All right, I know what some of you are thinking. These are women. They can't read a map. Maybe they've come to the wrong place. <laughs> what? Some of the men were thinking that, not me, of course. I know. Not good to lie on Easter, is it? They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and we know it's not the wrong place because if you back up to Luke 23, just the verses, if you have your Bible in front of them, you'll, you'll see that the body had been placed into the hands of a, a gentleman who was a member of the Jewish ruling council named Joseph of Arimathea, and he had been accompanied by some of these same women out to the tomb. They had looked and seen exactly where Jesus' body had been placed. Verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. So they knew exactly where they were going. And when they came and they saw that stone rolled away from the tomb, they got the shock of their life. What's going on here? And they are completely perplexed. You know what I love about this? Having once not been a Christian myself, I remember long periods of being perplexed at the people who believed that a guy rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. I remember long arguments with the people who had invited me to church about the possibilities of this. Maybe there are some people sitting here today, people that were invited by our own Crosswalk members. Hopefully there are some people sitting here today who don't feel supremely convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that he is the son of God. Maybe as you hear me talk, you are a little bit perplexed by how convinced Luke seems to be about this, how convinced Pastor Jeff seems to be about this. Maybe it's surprising to you to think, really, some guy 
believes in that. And we've all heard the narrative on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, in Time and Newsweek magazine. You see, the narrative goes like this, that people back in Jesus' day were a lot more gullible when it came to the supernatural. It was what they used to explain so many things back in their day. So naturally, people talked about someone rising from the grave 2,000 years ago. It was easier for those non-scientific people to believe such things as this. But you need to see how shocked even Jesus' disciples are. And if we really dive into history and archaeology and the things that we've learned in recent years, we, we come to understand that many people of Jesus' day, probably most people of Jesus' day, would have been just as perplexed as the women at thinking about a person rising from the grave. The Jews, for example, they believed in an ultimate resurrection of the dead, or at least some of them did. The Sadducees, a a very large sect of the Jews, didn't even believe in that. But some of them believed in an ultimate resurrection where there would be a general resurrection of the dead for all people at once, but not, not a single person rising from the grave all by himself. The Romans had been influenced by Eastern philosophy, and so had the Greeks. And so they believed that what happens after death is that your soul separates from your body, and it doesn't want to go back into your body because the body, the physical part of us, to the Romans and Greeks, was by definition evil. So once the soul, the the good part of you, the the holy part, the pure part of you was released from the prison of the body. There was no way that soul was returning to the body to rise from a grave. It might have been different reasons, but people of Jesus' day would have been every bit as skeptical about a resurrection from the dead as you and I might be from our own culture and our own beliefs today. What I want to say to you is thank you for being here. Even if you are somewhat perplexed by the idea of Jesus Christ rising from the grave, you're here, willing to listen, willing to explore a little bit. And I thank God for that, and I hope that you will continue to come back and and explore. And it's all right to be a little bit perplexed. I've been there, and I would guess that there's more than a several of you in the auditorium today who are... Mm, I'm not sure if I believe this thing. Here's what I want you to write down in that first blank, and then I'll go back up and pick up Mark 16, 14. Jesus' ultimate victory was a perplexing victory. Now, the reason I skipped over this passage is I want to go back to it, but I want to frame it this way. We're in the midst of the final four. And can you imagine one of those excellent Final Four coaches, if their players suddenly forget what the game plan was, what he had written up on the whiteboard, maybe getting a little bit miffed and saying, boys, we got to remember the game plan. We got to execute on the game plan. And and can you imagine a, a gentle, maybe even a little bit harder than gentle rebuke from such a coach because he loves his players and he wants them to be a championship team? I think all of us can, can imagine something like that happen. If you've watched a few of the, the March Madness games, you've seen it happen in front of you on the television more than a time or two. 
a rebuke from a coach who loves his players and wants them to be winners. Now in that frame of mind, I want you to look at what happens. Jesus rises from the tomb early on Easter Sunday morning and, and he meets Mary Magdalene and, and sends her with reports of his resurrection and so on and so forth. But by that evening, the disciples, the apostles, the ones who followed Jesus for, for three years plus are hunkered down in a room for fear of the Jews. They're scared out of their wits. What's gonna happen to us? Our leader was crucified. And Jesus appears physically alive to them in that room. And this is what, he, what it says he does. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating. This is evening now. He rebuked them for their lack of faith. He rebuked them for their lack of faith because he loves them. Because he wants to see them get the game plan. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. They were perplexed. But Jesus claps his hands together and says, come on, boys, this is really happening. Here I am standing alive before you. You've seen me walk through the locked doors of this room. You can see the marks in my hands in my feet. A week later, he's going to, he's going to allow Doubting Thomas, one of the apostles, to actually touch him so he can tell, yep, that's not a dream, it's not a ghost, this is, he has really, truly, physically risen from the grave. Let's back up to the morning. So the women are at the tomb, they see the stone rolled away from the tomb, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? So the first thing that happens that's kind of even more shocking now is two angels appear to these women. And right there, that tells us something critically important. Do you know when angels appear in the Bible, what's about to happen? Things are gonna change, big time. When we see angels appear, and I'll just use one example. You know, pretty much everybody knows this example. What happens when Jesus is born? Suddenly a whole host of heavenly angels appears, singing, Hosanna in the highest, right? And, and they're singing this beautiful Christmas hymn about the birth of the Savior. The Messiah has come. It's a huge pivot point. Read throughout the Bible, whenever angels appear, that's God signaling there's gonna be a turn in the road. And that's exactly what's happening at Easter. Angels are appearing to say, this makes all the difference. This changes everything. We're going in a whole new direction here. And I, and I hope that that's something that you see and feel today as you celebrate Easter, a whole new direction about this thing called Christianity. You know, even, even people who doubt the resurrection of Jesus often, and I know I was like this, they find good things about Christianity. They love the fact that, that that Jesus teaches the morality that he teaches, that he teaches us about love and, and truth, 
that he teaches us to be respectful and caring and forgiving. They love the idea of this man who looks down from a cross with his hands and feet nailed to it and looks down at the people who've just crucified him and in great mercy and love says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. People, many of us love the fact that Jesus said, judge not so that you won't be judged. Things like this are appealing to us. But with the resurrection, here's the huge pivot. It's a pivot that says Jesus is about so much more than better morality and greater wisdom for our lives. That Jesus is so much more than just a prophet who came to teach us how to make ourselves better. Jesus came to live in our place a perfect life that you and I cannot live. He substituted for us. And the penalty for sins that you and I deserve, the wages of sin is death, the Bible teaches us. Jesus, the Son of God, willingly takes upon himself in the most brutal fashion, and being not just a man, but also God himself, that blood that he sheds for you and me, the body that he offers as a sacrifice for you and me, is a sufficient price before God the Father to pay for all of our sins. What a huge pivot this is. And I want you to hear that message loud and clear this morning. The truth about Easter is that Jesus is here to do much more than give us a list of laws that if we follow them, we will be better people. Jesus is here to die and then to rise again so that The Father can show us. Jesus, the Son himself, can show us. That payment that Jesus made for your sins, I accept it, and I stamp your sins paid for in full. That's the message, that's the pivot that all of us can enjoy, that the angels are coming to announce, first of all, to the women, Jesus truly is our Messiah, our our Savior. And there's another pivot. See, before this time, in order to know about the promises of a Messiah, you had to know a Jewish person. You had to have hopefully traveled through that land bridge called Palestine between Egypt and Babylon or Assyria or the Hittites and maybe encountered the Jewish nation and seen that they were a little bit different, that their God was a little bit different. You had to have been drawn in through this relationship to a Jewish person to hear about a promised Messiah. But this is a pivot point also in this way that now Jesus says to his people, don't wait any longer for people to come to you. You go. We're gonna change the polarity on this. We're not any longer gonna hope that people come in and see how different we are, we're gonna go out, we're gonna scatter, and we're gonna tell people about Jesus. We're gonna preach the gospel to all creation. See what Matthew, or Mark 16, 15 and 16 says? He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
Jesus wants us to share with the whole world, with all of creation, stop looking for the living among the dead. Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive and he is alive today. As the living Lord and living Savior of all mankind, tell people this amazing message. Here's the next thing I want you to write down in your notes. Jesus' ultimate victory was a pivotal victory. So pivotal that when the Apostle Paul writes about this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if the resurrection from the dead doesn't exist, then even Jesus is not raised. And then he goes on to say this. This is so critical for us to, to hear. And if Jesus is not raised, he says, then our preaching is useless and your faith is in vain. In other words, Paul says, if this resurrection stuff is not real, if it's not true, if Jesus is not the son of man and the son of God, then we're wasting our time here this morning. Paul would say it's a a complete waste of our time to simply study Jesus' morality, to simply study Jesus as a wise man and a prophet. If we don't believe that this most unique thing in all of history happened, that the Son of Man who, became, who, who was also, didn't become, was also from eternity the Son of God, rose from the grave to show us that death is defeated. That truth is the pivotal truth in all of Christianity. Without it, Paul says, pack up and go home. Jesus' ultimate victory was a pivotal victory. Back to the women and the angels in Luke chapter 24. The angels say he, meaning Jesus, is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Like so many of us, the disciples apparently had a short memory for some things. And in fact, if you read in the Gospels again and again, Jesus had said it very plainly, very explicitly. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. He had said it that plainly. And I'll show you a verse in just a moment. He had also said it many times metaphorically. Destroy this temple, he said. And in three days I will raise it again. Look at Luke 9.22 and see how explicit Jesus' language had been. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is Jesus long before his death, long before his arrest, pointing at the center field fence and calling his shot. Now, if there's anything more amazing than the resurrection, how about calling your shot before you get there, years before you get there, and saying, this is what I'm gonna do. How about Jesus taking the whiteboard, drawing up the game plan for the disciples and saying, 
Let me tell you what's going to happen. And that's what Jesus does in very plain, simple language for the disciples. And it's recorded again and again and again. And not only does he predict all of this, but afterwards, after he rises from the tomb, we know that he spends 40 days and he appears to the disciples, to all the apostles, to many other people. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, on just one of those occasions, he appeared to more than 500 people alive. Very convincing evidence that not only could Jesus call the shot, do you know that in the 1932 World Series, game three, inning five, it was the very next pitch after Babe Ruth pointed to center field that he knocked out of the park right over that wall that he had pointed at? Pretty amazing. But not nearly as amazing as Jesus Christ predicting years ahead of time exactly what would happen to him to a T and making it happen. And then after his death, appearing to hundreds of people alive. Turn your page. Jesus' ultimate victory was a predicted victory. It's so important for us to understand. But it doesn't stop there. There was a reason Jesus could predict this victory, and that's because he didn't predict it willy-nilly. He didn't predict it on a women of prayer. He predicted it on the basis of God's plan. This is exactly what had been drawn up from eternity as what needed to happen to redeem you and me from our sins and give us eternal life as a gift, to give us the power to change our lives even now. Look at what happens next in Luke 24. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and I love that he names names. See, this probably wasn't written till 55, 60 AD, the Gospel of Luke. But when he names names, he very, very likely names names of people who are still around. It's as if he's saying, if you doubt what I'm telling you about Jesus rising from the tomb, here's some names for you. Go talk to them and see what they saw. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Let me say that again. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Guys, anybody here relate to that? Ladies, you probably also relate to it in reverse, I'm guessing. Amen. Amen. Amen, sister. There's more going on here. Obviously, what's going on in the hearts of the disciples is important. 
they're suffering because of their own doubts, not because they're male or female. Everybody's doubting. Everybody's perplexed in this moment. But it is very interesting who Jesus appears to first. And women, you're going to love this. Do you know who Jesus appears to first? Women. And do you know why that's so interesting? Women had followed Jesus throughout his ministry, and in fact, of the women, it said more even than of the men that they supported the ministry of Jesus. One of the women, for sure, was relatively well off because she was the wife of an important official in Herod's palace. They had followed Jesus faithfully. Who stood at the cross? One apostle and the women. Faithful women. And yet, you need to know this as well. If you think that women are, are, are put down in our culture today, it's nothing, nothing compared to how women were put down in Jesus' day by Jewish culture, Roman culture, Greek culture. Women were marginalized and disenfranchised. And if a person were to invent a story about the resurrection from the dead, do you know what it would be highly unlikely to invent as part of this story if you wanted to convince a lot of people of it? That the first people to see Jesus alive and tell the others were women. Because if you were inventing this to convince people, you would want it to be men because to the Romans, to the Greeks, even to the Jews, it wouldn't have seemed like nonsense purely because of the bad attitudes the men had toward the women in their day. Now, I'm not justifying it. I see a few of you scowling at me. That's not me, okay? Just clarifying that. That's the people in the culture of Jesus' day. But let's extrapolate from that a little bit. If Jesus loves the marginalized and the disenfranchised of his day enough to show himself to them first, whether it's women, we know he he ate with sinners, this is Jesus' modus operandi. What we need to know as church today is that one of the most powerful pivot points of the resurrection is that we are here to love people who are disenfranchised, to, to preach the gospel and to share with all creation and especially with people who are marginalized. We've heard so much in our news recently about various justifications that we make right here in our country to push people to the edges. It might be their socioeconomic status and their poverty. I don't know if any of you saw this horrific story about Twitter this past week about these hugely mean, abrasive tweets that were sent out by people against homeless people. And and this person, to make people aware, went and had actual homeless people read these extremely cruel tweets. And if you get a chance to see this, it's, you, take a look at the face of these people. 
We're so tempted to marginalize people because we think there's some reason they are the way they are. And Jesus never, ever, ever, ever did that. He didn't marginalize people because of poverty, because of ethnicity or race, because they were females or males. There was no excuse for that to Jesus. The only thing that caused Jesus to do was go after them harder because he loved to bring people on the fringe inside his love. And he loves today through his church, the hands and feet of Jesus to bring the marginalized into his love today. It's not long after this, about 50 days on the day of Pentecost that Peter, who has been wondering about what actually happened on the first day, has completely turned around. Look at this. He's preaching on the day of Pentecost. This is the apostle Peter. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you, and I want you to underline these words, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge to bring sinful, marginalized people like you and me back to himself, back to God, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus' ultimate victory was a planned victory. Last point I'm going to make this morning. We've talked a lot about the ultimate long-range win and victory that Jesus won for us at Easter. But let me ask you this. Does it mean anything for you today as you leave this room? Is there any immediate benefit of Jesus rising from the grave? Luke 24, 12 says that Peter was still wondering to himself on the original Easter Sunday what had happened. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. But very shortly thereafter, Mere days thereafter, Peter is completely convinced. He's told by Jesus that his deserting Jesus is fully forgiven, that their relationship is restored. And as I mentioned before, mere weeks later on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching with fervor to the people, this Jesus is your Savior and your Messiah. He is utterly convinced and out to convince others of Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' payment for our sins. Acts 2.32 says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Do you know why that's important for you to hear today? Because the benefit of Easter does not start many years from now when you die. The benefit of Easter starts for you today. You have a Lord and a Messiah in your life. That is someone who rules for you 
from the throne in heaven who will watch over you and care for you powerfully every day for the rest of your life. You have a Messiah, which means every day when you pray and ask for forgiveness, God will grant it to you again and again and again every day for the rest of your life. That's your Messiah. He loves you that much. Maybe there are people sitting in this room right now who who feel like, I have no hope. I can see no future for myself. Maybe some of you have recently been engaging in in escapist fantasies. If only I could get out of this job. If only I could get out of this marriage. If only I could get out of this place that I live in. Because you are so fed up and and you wish anything could happen to give you a little sliver of hope and life. And you're missing the fact that it's right there in front of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, who gives all of us hope, not only for eternity, but also for today. He is your Lord and your Messiah. He rules powerfully from his throne in heaven on your behalf because he loves you. And he is your savior. Whatever guilt is holding you back, whatever history, whatever past is making you feel like you have no future because people, well, they know my reputation. They know how bad I once was. They know how wrong I once lived. Pack it away because Jesus has forgiven it. And Jesus wants your future, your hope-filled future, to start right now. This is the last thing Peter said on the day of Pentecost. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? My prayer is that's the same question that you'll ask as you come out of this message today. My brothers, my sisters, my family members, what shall I do with this truth? This statement that pastor has told us again and again that the son of God and the son of man has risen from his tomb. What should I do about it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to give us hope and a future. Your plans are to prosper us and you show us that so clearly in the sending of your son for us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, your perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We are forgiven and we are given hope and life in your death and now in your resurrection. Help us to celebrate the victory that you won for everyone in this room and help us to see that we have now eternal life and eternal hope as a gift from you and we have hope today and life right now because you are our Lord and our Messiah. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. Jesus' victory was a powerful victory. And yet I want to say to those who maybe still after today's service find it perplexing, this church is designed for you. 
And we want you to come back and keep exploring. We want this to be a a safe place where you can ask your questions about Jesus and, and his resurrection and all the other stuff about Jesus and God. So if you're one of those who, who has his doubts about this God thing, please come back. We'd love to have you back. And if you're one of those who's a hardcore believer, I love you guys. <laughs> I consider myself one of you. But I had my times too where I found all of this a little bit perplexing. You come back too and let's take this journey together that starts with that pivotal moment when Jesus rose from the tomb alive. Let me send you out into the world with, your, with, your Lord's bless, with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Y'all have a great Easter Sunday. Come back next week. We'll see you out on the patio.